Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike sits down with Radin Mohamed Marty Muliana Natalagawa, former foreign minister of Indonesia, to explore current U.S.-Indonesia relations and U.S. foreign policy towards Southeast Asia. The two discuss Marty's time in government and how the bilateral relationship should deal with issues like Myanmar, COVID-19, Chinese assertiveness, climate change, and support for democracy in the region. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. Hope everyone has been having a good summer. We're joined today by a very distinguished guest, Radin Mohamed Martin Muliana Natalagawa, known to his many friends and admirers in government and academia as uh, Marty Natalagawa, the former foreign minister of Indonesia and a leading thinker on Southeast Asia, U.S. relations with Asia and democracy. We're going to talk about all of those things in a strategic context today. But Marty, if I may, we always start because our listeners are curious how you got here. Mm. You were born on Bandung, I think. But how did you come into the foreign ministry and, 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 and this interest in democracy and international affairs? Well, uh, thank, thank you, Mike, for having me for the, on this uh, program. You know, I'm r- really fortunate, I feel, in the sense that diplomacy or foreign policy is something that I had long been interested in ever since I was little, actually. And naturally, when I finish school and university, the first option would be to apply to the foreign ministry of my country, which is Indonesia. And therefore, throughout some 30 years of service in the foreign ministry, I was able to synergize between my personal interest in diplomacy and foreign affairs and the profession that I pursue, and especially the sense of service I wanted to facilitate and and to pursue. So I've been fortunate in that respect. But I couldn't think of uh, doing anything else uh, other than what I have been doing over the past 30 years, actually, yeah. And you you studied in the UK? Mm Mm-hmm, yes. I actually, that, yes, that actually, I I should have said, when I was at school, then, uh, you know, not many people in in the UK know about Indonesia. So a great deal of my time at uh, at the boarding school, at at a boarding school in the UK, was spent explaining to my fellow students what Indonesia was all about and you know I guess that became a rather natural uh, inclination for me to be able to try to explain my country Indonesia what it's, uh, its its past its present and its future and those years in the UK was quite transformational as well in the sense that you know whilst I was out of the country I felt uh, you know I was able to observe uh, developments in Indonesia from a hopefully a more objective manner and, and equip me, at, I believe, in, in a better way to be able to pursue the career that I chose, namely diplomacy. In some ways, the best way to manage the United States foreign policy bureaucracy may be to study in the UK. <laughs> we still have a bit of an inferiority complex. I know. And I understand, so you were ambassador in the UK before coming to the UN and then foreign minister, and you were knighted, right? You are actually Sir Marty Nadalgao, right. I understand. Well, yes, well, I, there was... Uh, that kind of acknowledgement. But yes, I, I spent some time uh, in the UK as a student at, at a university as well, and then uh, as an ambassador, but only for a year and a half before I was transferred to uh, the United Nations, where I spent about two years, and then back to Jakarta as Foreign Minister of Indonesia. So 
all in all, although I, I was in the foreign service, I spent actually quite a great deal of time in Indonesia itself, uh, especially during a very what was an exciting period of transformation. Indonesia, for some of you, um, I'm sure your listeners would appreciate, at one time was an authoritarian state where the military essentially, uh, you know, was the predominant power. And uh, it, we went through uh, important democratic transition. And, uh, you know, I was very much part of the uh, uh, system in, in the diplomacy and trying to make sure how the democratic transformation within the country get uh, manifested and implemented in the foreign policy domain. And so that was a very exciting period. In a way, you have almost almost like a blank page uh, on which to project your, your own values. Yeah, It's a remarkable story. And I got into this business after studying Asian studies mm. in the United States, where many prominent scholars, American scholars I studied under, basically made the case that Suharto's regime, Marcos in the Philippines, these mm. were normal. This was the normal Asian mm. view of democracy. Don't expect democracy. And then while I was a graduate student, Indonesia and Korea and Australia, many others, you know, in the same period, uh, went through these remarkable democratic transitions. Imperfect, perhaps, but yeah. uh, uh, unanticipated. Yeah. In many ways, as a foreign minister, you were you were really sui generis. You, you really put Indonesia in a global context in a way I think really no foreign minister had before. So I'm curious, who are there any Indonesian foreign policy figures or thinkers who inspired you or were you really creating this foreign policy thinking in an entirely new context? Well, um, you know, I mean, I wasn't driven by any uh, specific personalities because I, but I felt a great sense of responsibility and burden even uh, in the sense that knowing all this figures that had preceded me in, as a guardian of Indonesian foreign policy, I felt that in the time that I have in terms of being the foreign minister of Indonesia, I had an opportunity to make a difference. And I didn't want to simply do the routine matters, but I want to be as transformational as possible and try to make a, a change. And, and some of those I, I managed to, to implement or to introduce, but others are yet to be fully, fully carried out. But, you know, I mean, I'd rather that we try and not succeed rather than not trying at all. But uh, Indonesia is, it shouldn't be an insignificant country given, you know, the, the normal indices of a country's uh, potential power or potential influence. But I feel often case, uh, you know, we are punching below our weight that we can do more. There's always room for further enhancement, yeah. You became foreign minister when Barack Obama was president. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. and of course, you really could not think of an American president in history who's even remotely close to Barack Obama in terms of understanding Indonesia and Indonesia's importance. So in some ways, you lucked out. You came to power yeah. in a sort of golden era for U.S.-Indonesia relations. Did, did it feel that way in Jakarta? It certainly seemed that way here. Yeah, well, absolutely. Of course, uh, there are many factors that goes into the uh, formulation and implementation of foreign policy, but uh, personalities matter, uh, leaders matter uh, in terms of the policy itself and the way those policies are implemented. And having a uh, figure such as President Obama, who is obviously very much informed uh, not only of uh, the region, but also of Indonesia, provides a tremendous assets and, and, and potential for Indonesia. Then what becomes uh, urgent then was how to ensure that there is actual concrete 
delivery uh, in terms of the potential. And, you know, step by step, I can recall occasions when the then Obama administration and our, our government then work hand in hand on issues such as Myanmar, unfortunately, another portfolio that is now seizing us and issues of the region, including the East Asia Summit, uh, etc. But uh, yeah, having President Obama uh, administration at the time was uh, important. But at the same time, I don't want to overemphasize the point because one of the successes of Indonesia-US relationship has been how cross-government it has been. I mean, government can come and go in DC and as well in Jakarta, but we've been able to maintain uh, rather steady progress in, in the development of the bilateral relationship. I'm interested in where you think we are right now. Secretary of Defense Austin had in August, early August, a visit mm. to Jakarta that uh, most people thought, including in the region, was was quite successful. Mm. He managed to navigate that difficult rock and hard place of mm. wanting to shore up U.S. Indonesia relations, push back against China without you know, entrapping Indonesia in U.S. strategic competition. And most observers, including in Indonesia thought he did a good job. And vice president's going to the region, not Indonesia, but to the region. Mm-hmm. And Secretary Blinken and others have highlighted Indonesia as an important partner on, as you said, on Myanmar and ASEAN. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, on the other hand, there isn't a lot of progress on Myanmar, despite Indonesia's efforts to be, take a lead within ASEAN with, mm-hmm. uh, since the coup. And things like you, you had a vision for Indonesia as a kind of global maritime fulcrum. Mm-hmm. The idea that Indonesia is a maritime state. It really is a fulcrum. Mm-hmm. That, that is how British and American and Australian foreign policy thinkers for decades thought of Indonesia as this mm-hmm. fulcrum in the middle of the Indo-Pacific. But the cooperation has not really manifested itself. Indonesia's position on the quad and some of these issues is still a bit ambiguous. And even on vaccine distribution, the U.S. has offered uh, lots of vaccines, but is struggling to actually do the bureaucratic work to distribute them. So, mm-hmm. so much uh, in terms of vision. But so many implementation challenges uh, between the US and Indonesia is is that a fair characterization? Do you well, think? Well, yes, I, I, I can I can subscribe to to your to your description just now, Mike, because um, I do recall. I mean, between Indonesia and the United States, we have post reform in Indonesia. I mean, post nineteen ninety eight onwards, we have had uh, no real serious uh, stumbling block in our bilateral relationship, and and there's certainly been a lot of uh, good intentions and plans and visions described and, and put on paper. The latest uh, buzzword is the notion of a strategic partnership between the two countries that recently the foreign ministers and the Secretary of State uh, reinforced. But as I recall, one of the problems, as you have just now said, is the implementation of this kind of commitment. And in the past, I recall there was an idea to have more regular annual uh, bilateral meetings between the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister of Indonesia that heads or chapeaued a number of uh, technical ministries. And I think during my time, we met about two or three times uh, in that format, which in a way becomes a, a way of uh, having like a scorecard of where we are on, on the different issues and, and, and to discipline ourselves to make sure that we are actually making concrete progress. Otherwise, uh, you know, we, we have... Uh, lacune between high-level meetings, high, you know, whether it be for ministerial or, or summit-level meetings. So I think the mechanics, uh, although it, it sounds very mundane and very too technical, but 
the mechanics of the bilateral relationship need to be facilitated, need to be smoothened and make sure that it's working. But it's not only that, the leadership matters as well. Uh, on our part, you know, I'm obviously, I'm not privy to what has been going on from within uh, in Indonesia's decision-making potential, but I do get the impression, the impression, uh, reading from public statements that Indonesian governments uh, have made recently, foreign policy had become essentially almost like a commerce uh, diplomacy, basically it's mm-hmm. to do with commerce, with trade, which is fair and fully understandable. But until recently, there was an impression this was almost at the expense of you know, bigger strategic issues. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong, but and, and therefore it sort of unnecessarily limits the portfolio of issues on which Indonesia and the United States engages. But I hope things are now going to be more than simply mercantilist trade or commerce uh, foreign policy issues. Yeah, You know, the U.S. through the Trump and Biden administrations has been a little bit guilty of that kind of transactional, mm. non-strategic approach to economic statecraft, too. So we're mm. unfortunately emulating each other in that sense. Yeah. yeah, We might be around the corner. I mean, the U.S. does not have a confirmed assistant secretary of state at the time we're recording. We don't have undersecretaries for economic affairs in place. We do have an ambassador in Jakarta, of course. And then Indonesia has been very distracted, I imagine, by COVID. Mm-hmm. So the potential's there, just around the corner, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you prioritize if, if you're advising President Biden, President Jokowi for their first big summit in person? What would you emphasize as areas for strategically significant U.S.-Indonesia cooperation? Well, as you know, uh, Mike, sometimes these things are decided for us in the sense that events or developments are such that uh, priorities are predetermined. And, and at the moment, for many countries, governments in Southeast Asia, the pandemic, the COVID, is front and center in their preoccupation. And, and how to address the health dimension of the pandemic and the economic repercussions uh, must occupy the first two uh, list of priorities because that has been so challenging to all of us and, and predetermined in a way a sets of priorities. But beyond those two obvious ones, uh, I would, you know, especially given the changes now taking place in, in DCs in Washington, I, I would put place the issues such as climate change at the forefront as well. Uh, this is uh, not only climate change as an existential environmental issue, but the many other facets of, of climate change as well, because as you, you may concur, nowadays a lot of these issues, whether it be pandemic or climate change, they have also security dimensions uh, potentially. So that is uh, an issue of, of, of potential uh, importance and uh, the geopolitics uh, of the region. And, and here I think the, uh, the recent... Uh, orientation or the recent approach adopted by the administration in terms of not making it too uh, from the prison, prism of China, but rather looking at uh, from the perspective of the region, I think is well received in, in our part of the world. Mm. Because, uh, you know, I mean, a country like Indonesia wouldn't want to be forced to approach this issue simply from the US-China uh, competitive dynamics. I think United States, in my view, would do well to project its comprehensive engagement in the region, not only security, that's obvious, 
but uh, U.S. has so much assets and, and wherewithal in other areas that it must employ and, and deploy as well. What about maritime security? One of the big changes for Indonesia's geopolitical picture since you left mm-hmm. office in 2014 mm-hmm. is that the Chinese maritime presence has now extended to the Natuna Sea and mm-hmm. persistent presence and quite aggressive presence. So I imagine that has rattled Jakarta's sense of maritime security. And we do have more cooperation bilaterally, yeah. training centers and so forth. Do you think that will grow in the years ahead or will yes, the Indonesian well, side be a bit cautious? Yeah, actually, I mean, you are quite right. In recent in recent years, we have seen a more assertive policy by China in the maritime domain, the South China Sea, uh, even beyond. Uh, it impacts us in the Natuna Sea as well. I'm not sure how the management of this issue has been in recent past, but actually, it, if... As I recall, it's not actually quite a new phenomenon because even then there was always a constant testing or prodding uh, by China uh, on these type of issues. But, you know, we, meaning Indonesia and ASEAN, were, were quite disciplined in, in not simply be seen to be acquiescing. We were quite determined to each time there is a prodding or testing by China, we always respond diplomatically, and they always, on the whole, uh, step back. But uh, I'm not sure what has happened uh, since then, because we have seen, obviously, ASEAN less united than ever before. Uh, And, well, ASEAN has not always been united, because back in 2012, I experienced myself on the South China Sea when ASEAN, for the first time, actually failed uh, in adopting a joint statement uh, at the end of the foreign ministers' meeting because of divisions over the South China Sea. But the difference then was as soon as there was a division, uh, Indonesia quickly sought to repair the damage and sought to quickly reunify ASEAN's position. And therefore, once again, we were able to have some kind of a basic minimum uh, common position. But nowadays, I get the sense that uh, it has become, uh, there's a sense of resignation as if, this is how things are. Uh, there is uh, no longer the sense of common investment uh, in the, in, on the issue, which is a shame, really, because all throughout Indonesia's strategic objective is to ensure that on the South China Sea, while the, the protagonists or while the claimant states are you know, certain member states of ASEAN, it must be still an ASEAN, collective ASEAN issue. But at the moment, there is a sense of like an a la carte, splitting of, of hairs and, and different countries have different positions. It's unfortunate, yeah. It's unfortunate in many, many ways. The Obama administration, uh, until 2016, until the mm. tribunal ruling in favor of the Philippines' position mm. against China's position, up to that point, not only the U.S., the EU, Japan, Australia, a lot of countries worked with Indonesia, worked with Singapore, worked with others to try to back up ASEAN mm. unity, and it broke. It just broke in 2016 in July when the ASEAN leaders were unable to come up with a consensus view mm. because Cambodia blocked it. I was in Cambodia that summer and the Cambodian government spokesman publicly acknowledged China gave them $650 million and yeah. said, that's a lot of money. And uh, mm. <laughs> he very transactional, very transparent. I was sort of surprised mm. to hear it. Now Americans are wondering, and maybe you have good advice for us. How seriously should we take ASEAN? Are we better off investing heavily in strategic partnerships with Indonesia, mm. Vietnam, repairing our alliance with the Philippines? Or is there still a case to be made for a 
strong U.S. ambassador to ASEAN, a robust approach to ASEAN as a whole. It's, it's a harder case to make than it was when you were foreign minister. But is that case still there? Well, uh, I think it's uh, the challenge or the, the onus is now on ASEAN to demonstrate that it does matter to countries such as the United States. It has in the past, uh, you know, I mean, at the risk of uh, oversimplification, typically I would say ASEAN has mattered because it has transformed relationship between Southeast Asian countries that had once been inimical and marked by, by tensions, become more of a security community. Not perfect, but still, the notion of having an open conflict between them is less so today. It has mattered in the sense that ASEAN has provided some kind of a, a platform uh, on which non-ASEAN countries can meet, the ASEAN Pluses and ASEAN Plus three, plus ones, the uh, East Asia Summit, ASEAN Regional Forum, at least a convening power. And it has mattered as well in terms of the economy, the economic transformation and how economies such as the United States and, and ASEAN has become increasingly enmeshed uh, uh, between them. But it's now less of a given. Uh, I think it's now we have to, the, the, the Myanmar issue is obviously a serious test case. What I am concerned about, Mike, is that now there is some kind of a distinction being made between Southeast Asia and ASEAN. Uh, until recently, it used to be considered as, as one and the same. When you are thinking about Southeast Asia, it basically means ASEAN, because that's the chief modality uh, by, through which you should project your interests and, uh, and communicate with countries of the region. But now, uh, when I see a lot of white papers and, and policy papers by, by governments, I increasingly know that uh, the term used is a little bit uh, more nuanced. Countries speak of Southeast Asia rather than necessarily ASEAN. But having said all that, the obituary on ASEAN has been written many times over uh, in the past. There's been so many occasions in the past when ASEAN it was has been deemed to be irrelevant, to, to be at the end of, the, uh, of its uh, usefulness. But somehow it has proven its resilience and therefore... It would be extremely uh, folly, in my view, if the United States was to abandon or, or to, to set ASEAN aside and pursue something else uh, without clear guarantee that this other approach will be as effective in projecting its, its interests and its concern. In this connection, therefore, uh, you know, I mean, notions such as the Quad, uh, which is uh, obviously recently more developed, shouldn't be at the expense of U.S. engagement with ASEAN as well. Just one final point on this note. This is a, a, a huge uh, wish list of uh, uh, hope. If and when the United States uh, feels comfortable domestically to re-engage in, in terms of uh, one of those big trade agreements, I would hope that one day the United States will not completely uh, you know, close the option of joining the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, because uh, otherwise that RCEP will become perceived to be a China-led process. But uh, that's just a, I know the domestic politics, whether it be RCEP or the TPP and, and others uh, would not allow it at this time, but you wouldn't want to abandon a process of this type completely to the other side, so to speak, yeah. I think that's very good advice, for this administration, and one they're hearing a lot from mm. friends and allies in Asia. And originally, going back 15, 20 years, the idea was that T 
TPP, the US-Korea Free Trade Agreement, RCEP, all of these would sort of merge into this free trade area of the Asia-Pacific. Yeah. That's a very hard political sell now yeah. Yeah. because yeah. of yeah. strategic competition. The hope is that after the midterm elections in the US, the Biden administration starts being more proactive on trade. Could you clarify one thing, Marty? You said that you're noticing in white papers more and more reference to Southeast Asia, less reference to ASEAN. I've noticed that in white papers from the US Britain, Australia. Are you seeing that within ASEAN as well, or are you just describing no, no, no. outside? Uh, more, more external. Outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, like that's sort of the reality yeah. the rest of the world faces. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the US, the EU, um, Australia, uh, Japan, a lot of countries put some of their best people in as ambassadors to ASEAN mm-hmm. and work actively with the ASEAN Secretariat. So the will is there, but as you point yeah. out, there has to be something to work with. Yeah. One domain is the. Uh, cooperation on the Mekong area uh, as well. I think, uh, I mean, you know, when, when, when we think of geopolitical tension, so to speak, in Southeast Asia, typically one think of the South China Sea, uh, right, um, as, as the theater for geopolitical back and forth. In the recent past, there was some going back and forth on the Straits of Malacca uh, as well. Uh, and not many talk about the Straits of Malacca nowadays uh, because the three literal states, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, essentially have gotten that uh, somewhat managed. But now on so-called mainland Southeast Asia or mainland ASEAN, uh, the Mekong dynamic is becoming increasingly contested as well in between you know, the China-driven initiatives, uh, there is the United States as well, Japan. And in my friendly uh, and informal advice to my some of my ASEAN colleagues, it would be well for ASEAN to be able to have almost like a like a code at how to preempt. Uh, we don't we wish to avoid, I think, uh, the kind of the going back and forth uh, on the issue of cooperation over the Mekong area that could be inimical to ASEAN's interests. Yeah. And here I should give a shout out to friends at the Stimson Center in Washington who are really trying to keep the spotlight on on the Lower Mekong as we speak. An absolute tragedy is unfolding in Afghanistan. And the Biden administration pulled out as quickly as they did, in part, so they could focus on the Indo-Pacific. But the implications for the Indo-Pacific are not good. I, Everything from distracting India away from the maritime domain, because they have to be worried, to the danger of foreign fighters finding a safe haven that would, uh, perhaps more than any other part of Asia, threaten Indonesia and then questions about American competence. I personally don't think this is a signal about American commitment to allies in in the Indo-Pacific. Public opinion polls in the U.S. show that there's very robust support for our friends and allies in Asia and fatigue about Afghanistan. But nevertheless, some very, very unsettling signals. How do you how do you see it? How do you think Jakarta will view it today, well, tomorrow, down the road? Yeah, well, I mean... As we speak, as we record just now, things are happening in Afghanistan in the way in the in the way that is it is. Afghanistan, in a way, manifests situation in many other parts of the world where uh, what had originally been a local national situation quickly becomes of a wider ramifications uh, beyond the country, beyond the region, to becoming a global uh, geopolitical issues as well and. Even a country like Indonesia has felt the implications or the impact of the conflict in Afghanistan over the past two decades in terms of radicalization of individuals involved in terrorist movements. 
in terms of outflow of migrants, uh, I mean, refugees trying to flee the country to go to Australia and end up stranded in Indonesia. So it has become the, over the past 20 years and probably now in the future, uh, as we have all felt uh, the implications of the developments in Afghanistan. But uh, at the moment, I think we are governments in the region would be observing how the United States will, will react and we we respond to the developments. We we are not as um, you know. I mean, we've always felt uh, as the United States, I'm sure, has in the, uh, recognized as well that uh, you know, development of governance, uh, democratic governance, and etc. must have uh, uh, ownership and sense of participation by the, the local population. And I guess ultimately now it's shown that the. Uh, capacity or the resilience of the democratic governance in, in Afghanistan is not as robust as we had hoped for. Yeah. It's a real tragedy. Did you visit as foreign minister? Yes, uh, I, I visit actually, I don't recall as foreign ministers, but I do recall as, a, as an ambassador to the UN when we went as a, a security council mission to Kabul. The UN security council mission had a visit to Kabul and, and so to see firsthand the situation uh, in the country, and and uh, this would be in the uh, mid two thousands, uh, late two thousands, and it was uh, a difficult environment, obviously. And yeah, all of us are dismayed by what is happening. To be honest, you know, I recall, uh, you know, I mean, one issue that I, I I hope we can touch on is on on democracy uh, as well. But I do recall actually, uh, in Indonesia, we have what was called Bali Democracy Forum. Uh, at one time, we had actually President Karzai uh, come and participate in the forum. And because we wanted to showcase or wanted to demonstrate that Islam, democracy and development can go hand in hand. But uh, we are seeing what we are seeing just now. So it is quite a tragic uh, situation. But, you know, from, for someone from outside uh, looking in, we don't have the responsibility of the full picture of what's going on in the country and you can't second guess uh, what's happening. But uh, I don't, at the same time, though, to your que original question, I don't see necessarily that this will detract or take away U.S. attention uh, elsewhere, for instance, in the Indo-Pacific, etc. I think that this has its own dynamic. But I can see a situation where the region's dynamic, meaning there is India, there is Russia, there is uh, China, that will be interesting to observe as well. It, it it changes the strategic quite apart from the Absolutely. massive humanitarian tragedy. It changes the chessboard. We don't know exactly how, but it definitely Absolutely. shifts it up. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the Bali Democracy Forum, which you initiated, I, mm -hmm. I believe, to show, in effect, that there are multiple pathways to democracy. And as mm -hmm. skeptics look at Afghanistan today and say, we have no business expecting countries to transition to democracy. Indonesia is one of the most important counter examples. Mm. And I hope uh, your own work as a thought leader on democracy will continue in that context. We we worked together two years ago on the Sunnylands principles that CSIS and mm. the National Endowment for Democracy and others put out, trying to frame an approach to democracy that fit the Indo-Pacific, that underscored our common values, but the different approaches and different experiences in different contexts. My sense is the Biden administration is really struggling with this democracy summit. Very important to the president. It's why he got into the race, because of what happened in our country with Charlottesville demonstrations and nativism 
in the Trump era. But I don't think they know quite what to do with the Indo-Pacific. What would you advise? How would a democracy summit unfold in the coming months in a way that would be attractive Mm. to uh, Indonesians and others who have more recent experiences actually building democracy? Well, I don't think there's any one size fits all. Uh, that's, that's what makes it difficult because every country's situation unique to itself. And, and therefore, any attempt to have a one size fits all a uniform approach, I think will uh, may disappoint. And from my perspective from the region, one of the major nexus that uh, a country like the United States must try to synergize is this relationship between promotion or, or partnership on democracy and the idea of state sovereignty and non-interference in our region. In our region, in Southeast Asia, certainly, there is still a very acute and a very intense suspicion uh, with anything to do with promotion of democracy. And they see this as being something that is to be imposed from uh, outside to the target country. And and this is where I think uh, a challenge would be how to, you know, I like the term that we've been using in Sunnylands, uh, Mike, in terms of having a partnership uh, rather than necessarily any other terminology, partnership and recognizing the notion of common ownership and national ownership and national uh, common participation. These are important principles to be able to uh, help facilitate. But, you know, I mean, the United States must also navigate the fact if we call, I mean, there's one nexus is that between promotion of democracy and principles such as non-interference to make the case that they actually go hand in hand. They are not necessarily an either or. And the other one is the nexus with geopolitics, because at the, at the moment, uh, the suggestion is being made, uh, which is, in my view, is false. It's as if when we talk about demo- uh, promotion of democracy, it's only the agenda of some countries and, and not of others. And it, it has become like a geo- part of a geopolitical uh, back and forth. And this is where I think one must be, be guard against. And, and I, I guess appealing to the young, the youth of the, these countries become especially important. When you look at what's happening now in Myanmar, uh, you know, you are seeing some of the most ardent defender of democracy are the young people who had over the past uh, 10 years and, and slightly more have uh, had their performative years during the uh, relatively open system and they don't wish to return to how the situation was before. So I, I guess projecting that sense of partnership uh, is extremely important because sometimes less can be more. Uh, it has to be just right, not too much that you begin to suffocate the local uh, process, uh, but at the same time, not to be totally disengaged. It's easier said than done, Mike, because uh, we in ASEAN, we have been failing, in my view, uh, in recent years, because up till recently, uh, the democratic dynamics in Southeast Asia was, in my view, was on the ascendancy we saw in the 2011, 2013, 14 developments in Myanmar. But then, since then, many of the country's foreign policies and policies tend to be, as I said before, more mercantilist, trade-oriented, and they don't consider uh, largely issues such as democracy as an issue to be discussed as an interstate uh, effort. And therefore, there was a benign neglect or neglect 
and we see what we are seeing now in, in Myanmar. And the cost now is far greater in terms of repair than would have been if they had really paid attention and continued to nurture uh, the democratic transition in Myanmar. So, uh, all in all, a lot of us uh, have a lot to learn, to be honest, yeah. None of us, or almost none of us, including the United States, can claim that we own the high ground right now. And I certainly hope that the summit goes ahead. Yeah. And I hope that the, the Biden administration has the bandwidth and the wisdom to be consultative about it. Yeah. And perhaps to ask Indonesia to lead a discussion on lessons from the Bali Democracy Forum. Ask Japan to lead a discussion on lessons from good governance through their quality infrastructure. Free, free and open Pacific financing. Let, this is not very, a very American way of doing foreign policy, but we're in an era where we should maybe step back a little bit. We can still be the conductor of the orchestra, mm-hmm. but we need a first violin. We need a cello section. Mm-hmm. We need to let other countries take a leading role based on their experience, or this yeah. this summit can end up being a Western European, Canadian, American, rather isolated event, which would be yeah. all the wrong yeah. signal. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a, that's a uh, you know a point well worth underscoring, uh, Mike. Because the, the often case, the process is as important as the actual you know intended results. And having a process as you describe it, which is engaging, inclusive, well, it may be a little bit uh, slower, uh, but you invest a sense of common ownership, and potentially it becomes more sustainable, uh, more sustained, and and more long lasting than a very efficient one-country-driven process that doesn't have a continued uh, lasting impact. And when administrations come and go, we, we may see the potential of the effort well invested at one time suddenly you know, come to an end. For instance, uh, not on democracy, on the policy pursued by the Obama administration on nuclear is it nuclear security or nuclear yes, safety? Yes, the nuclear security summit. Yeah, yeah. I, I attended two or three of those summits, and I thought, wow, this is a really important initiative in on an area that had l- relatively been lacking attention. And having all these leaders suddenly give attention actually created a lot of new dynamics and, and new progress. But uh, because it was so U.S. singularly driven, uh, once an administration change and add new ideas, then the whole thing sort of like uh, come to a halt. So I think along the line that you suggested, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. It has to be inclusive. And even I hasten to add, perhaps even to have, uh, it shouldn't be a process necessarily of having meeting of the converted. Uh, I mean, the office like-minded. Uh, there has to be a readiness to go back and forth yeah. and to have a really great debate on, on issues. So it should be a summit on democracy. It shouldn't be simply be a summit of democratic countries, but summit on democracy. Uh, yes. then, then, then it becomes a bit more open-ended. Yeah. Well, you're a leading thinker on this in an, in an Asian context and in a global context, I hope. The administration listens to you. Sir Marty Nadalagawa, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and uh, I think our listeners will learn a great deal from this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.